we're thankful to be here today. Some of you may be very thankful but that this is the last Sunday that we're going to be looking at Romans 9. We've sort of been at seminary a little bit, uh, walking through this sort of difficult passage, and uh, a passage that requires a lot of thought, and a lot of interaction in terms of our minds, and my prayer is that this would not be lost uh, just in our minds, that this would cause in you uh, an activity, a level of of attitude and spirit. I pray there will be change in your life by studying these great doctrines. What a wonderful lesson of growth for us. I'm still pretty amazed as we gather and we come here today how few people actually, God has had His hand of protection, how few of our church actually have encountered this disease. I think there's only still in our church only about three people. They had it, got it, recovered, and back with us. So, uh, and that was all just months and months ago, so we're so thankful that uh, many of us, I've, I've known a number of people, I've got relatives and friends and family who've had it, and uh, thankfully I've not known anyone who have uh, really suffered uh, uh, from it in a really, really extended time or died of it, so we can be thankful to God. We're overjoyed to study this Word, even if uh, some of you are ready to move back to Matthew, I think we're happy uh, to study the Word today. Our final week of this digression All right, we've looked at the first 18 verses here, the final parts of the chapter. Uh, What Paul does is he sort of wraps up his discussion, his defense of God's sovereignty and salvation. Of course, this is all in line with what he's going to say in chapters 9 and 10 about the nation of Israel and uh, God's plan, because that would have been a burning issue for Jewish people. God's made all these promises in the Old Testament about the people of Israel, and uh, they had been taught a certain way, maybe contrary to Scripture, to what God would do with the people of Israel and how God uh, uh, has salvation for His people and how He would provide salvation for His people. And so uh, Paul seeks to correct that, and the place he starts is with soteriology. That's a big word, a $10 word. It means the theology or the doctrines of salvation. That's the word soteriology. Paul gives us his soteriology, how God saves a soul here in chapter 9 of Romans. And this is connected to back what we were talking about in Matthew, where Jesus says, to you it's been given, but to them it's not been given. And Paul sort of dives a little deeper than Jesus did and sort of explains from God's point of view, not our point of view, but from God's point of view, uh, how He saves a soul. And what we've learned so far is that God is sovereign. We just sang this, Jesus commands our destiny. God is sovereign over the destiny of souls, though our wills, our volition. So this this is, is involved in salvation. We must choose Yet we have learned that God has chosen and elect His children before the foundation of time. And this is shocking for a lot of people, not the least of which were the people there listening to Paul in that day. So Paul, what he does in the rest of this chapter, after he sort of gives the doctrine, he spends some time answering the the most common objections, three of the most common objections, and these are not dissimilar to the objections that we hear oftentimes today to the doctrine of election or predestination. The Jews, like many people today, grew up learning something much different, different about how God saves a soul. The Jews, like many people today, grew up learning that if, if we do our part spiritually, religiously, perhaps even ritualistically, then God must, in order to be faithful, God must respond to those activities by saving a person. In other words, we are taught, and the Jews were taught back then, we are taught and we often assume 
that salvation is anchored in our will, in our plan, in our decision, even in our character. We assume God's faithfulness demands that He responds to us rather than us respond to Him. Paul says no way to that idea of salvation. Salvation is anchored in God's will, God's character, and according to God's plan. You don't want a salvation that revolves around us. If you had a salvation like that, we would very quickly lose that salvation. We want a salvation that is anchored in the sovereignty of God. You want a perfect, sovereign God in control of salvation. And Paul has answered that first objection, that first idea we saw last week, that this emanates, that the salvation emanates from God's will, God's plan, God's character. The next two objections Paul answers uh, that are, are very similar to one another. In fact, uh, the second objection is, very, is so close to that one that he only gives us a couple of verses at the very end of the chapter. The last couple or three verses at the end. What are these objective, uh, objections to Paul's doctrine? The first one would be something like this. If God chooses who will go to heaven and who will go to hell, then how does anybody really deserve hell? Can God justly judge someone if He's already predetermined that they're going to hell? How can God find fault in that person if He's already determined that they're not going to ever repent? So, a a similar question that you hear a lot today is, doesn't this idea, doesn't this, this thing, what Paul is teaching, doesn't this make us all robots just sort of going around mechanically through life and God just, everything's just sort of set out? Determinism is the philosophy. We're just sort of predetermined, everything, nothing. We have no will. We have no volition. We're just robots. Doesn't this philosophy make us robots? And Paul walks through and answers that question. How can God find fault? And then he answers that final objection, which, like I said, is very similar, another perceived sort of injustice. People would say God is unjust in doing this. The injustice would be something like this. There are those who were bad, who were pagan, who end up in heaven, and then there will be those with this plan, Paul. There are those who are bad and pagan and wrong and sinful and didn't live their lives worshiping Yahweh according to Scripture that, that will end up in heaven, and there are those like the Jews, who walk through Scripture, who are very careful to obey all these things, and they end up, because of God's sovereignty, they end up in hell. That sounds like an unjust system to me. And so people will object again to the doctrine of God's election on that basis. And again, Paul gives us these last few verses to uh, demonstrate to us that nevertheless man does have responsibility, and they are uh, the ones that are responsible for their own actions in response to Jesus. All right, so let me read to you verses 19 to the end of the chapter, a longer section, primarily because Paul includes some some verses from the Old Testament. But here he answers, and you can see this as we mark these questions, you will say to me then, and then we, we have sort of that back and forth, and we see that sort of diatribe with Paul. You will say to me then, verse 19, Romans 9, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He's called, not from the Jews only, but also the Gentiles? Indeed, He says in Hosea, those who are not My people, I will call My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. But the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. As if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And the Lord bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. You know, in all societies, there is great injustice. If you watch the news now, you may think injustice is only in America. But in all societies, there's injustice. Massive amounts of injustice. It could be racially based, age based. Injustice is based on education. Injustice is based on, on class or caste or whatever, wealth. Gender, religion, the list goes on. If we can dream it up, humanity has come up with a way to discriminate against one another. There has been injustice across this world in every society and every generation. There has been injustice. And so there's this outrage, this, this cry of, of injustice. Whatever group is discriminated against, we would say, deserves better treatment by other humans. They've been treated unfairly. They've been prejudged. And the societal answer is, of course, to ensure that everyone is treated equally. I mean, that's, that's what we ought to do, that no one is treated poorly, that as humans they deserve equality, they deserve justice. And we form our governments around this fundamental idea. If you look through uh, the history of America, yes, you can find plenty of examples of injustice, but you can also find plenty of people who cried out for justice, even back in the founding of our country. I was reading uh, this week in the newspaper that there was a, a lady for the New York Times that wrote this article basically saying that America is built simply on injustice and racism and slavery. Uh, a group of scholars rose up and said, uh, yeah, that's there, but there's also a bunch of people who were crying for justice from the very beginning. There were abolitionists, there were people who cried out for justice from the very beginning. And so, there's injustice in every society, and there ought to be those who call out against it. And, and, of course, Christians ought to be those who cry out for justice. We ought to create governments. We ought to call politicians to this level of justice of the way humans deal with one another. We all deserve a level playing field. We all deserve equality. And that equality should indeed be enforced. There ought to be a level of equality for all of us. And, by the way, reverse 
injustice does not fix current injustices. I think we see this all the time now. Uh, the answer to racism is sort of reverse racism, and that's, that's not going to fix anything, but just stir people up continually. It doesn't fix anything. What we need is justice, true justice for all people, equality for everyone. We're all humans. We're all one race, and justice demands that we be all treated the same, no favoritism, no discrimination. Based on that fundamental idea of human equality and justice is called out, people deserve better and should be treated better. We're equals. We should ensure justice in our society. Now, what about God vis-a-vis humans? It's very interesting because one of the most common objections to sovereign election is this is unjust. This is unfair. And that cry of injustice is, is based on really this fundamental idea is we ought to be treated better by God. God ought to be doing us better than just choosing our destiny. He ought to give us a say. He ought to give us, everyone maybe, give everyone equally the same Opportunity. God ought to be an equal opportunity saver. He ought to give everyone the same chance. It's an unjust God that would come and just predetermine who's lost and who is saved. And this idea of injustice is, is based on this idea that we ought to be treated better. We ought to be treated, in essence, as, as equals with God, or at least in this aspect, equals with God. That brings to mind what Satan was saying to Eve back in the Garden of Eden, right? God knows you'll become like him. You deserve to be treated better, Eve. You don't need to live under this dominating, sovereign God who determined you. You need to be treated better. And God knows if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like him. You deserve better treatment. There is inequality in your relationship with God. Well, Paul comes along and says, says basically this, we're not equals with God. (laughs) It's not humans versus humans. Yes, in the human society, in this world, there ought to be complete equality because we're all humans. But God is not human. God is God. And there should be inequality because He's God. There should be something different because He's God. Who are we to say that God's plan is unjust, that God's sovereign power is not right. Who are we to say? We've done a real good job creating a world of great justice, haven't we? No, we have not. And we have no place to point our fingers at God and say, God, you are unjust, you are unfair. This system of election is, is just unjust, unjust. It's not fair. No, Paul says, God plans, God's will, God's election are always just. They are always perfect. They are always holy because he is the very definition of justice and holiness and righteousness. He always does right simply because who he is. Now, this is why I'm calling today's sermon bowing before a sovereign God because that's essentially what we must do as we come to a doctrine or any doctrine, not just this doctrine, but any doctrine that is hard for us to understand, hard for us to accept. Ultimately, we must bow before a sovereign God. We must worship Him. There must be some difference in the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we sing, in the way in which we respond. Paul wraps up this uh, sermon or this section of his passage, or chapter 9, by basically saying the doctrine 
of election is worthless if it doesn't elicit the fruit of the Spirit. Let me say that again. The doctrine of election is worthless if it doesn't elicit the fruit of the Spirit. This truth should make you a better worshiper. This truth should make you someone who worships God more, who loves Him more, who treats people better than you already do. It should make you a better church member. It should make you a better neighbor, a better friend, a better co-worker, a better spouse, a better single person. This doctrine should inspire a new level of humility, a new level of obedience. And so Paul here begins by just putting us in our place, and that is under God, and calling us to bow before God. Look at the startling verse there, beginning of verse 19 and going on to verse 20. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This verse is devastating to our pride, isn't it? Some of you... Maybe you've gone through this like I did when I first studied this passage. You've, you've battled this idea. You've fought against this idea. You don't like the idea that God would predetermine or predestine people. And you've, you've come up with all sorts of ways that maybe it doesn't mean what it really plainly says it means. But Paul, inspired by God, puts us in our place, doesn't he? And this leads me to the first element of, of bowing to God really the first character necessary to believe the truth of election or any truth in the Bible, what is that characteristic? Number one, it is humility. Write that down, humility. Bowing before God, first and foremost, requires humility. If you find yourself battling these plain truths, Paul says to you, stop battling, start bowing. The, The tone here, it's pretty amazing some, some pastors would say, I avoid that kind of tone. In fact, I read an article this week that, that basically said pastors should never use the tone that clearly Paul is using here, but this is a pretty severe tone. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? But what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right of the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And Paul is basically saying, do you think you, a sinner, Though redeemed by God, you think you a sinner with all your baggage and all the sins that you deal with every day and all the problems you have and all the things you deal with, and yet you have the audacity to look at God and look at His plan and look at His sovereignty and think you have a better idea about what's fair and what's just. You have a better idea of God's plan, what it ought to be to redeem His creation. The tone is pretty severe sort of slaps us down a little bit. And, and for me, this was the deciding verse for me. When I read this passage, I studied all the way up to this verse, and I, I felt like I knew what it said, but I just resisted, and I pushed back, and I resisted, and I came up with ways that it didn't mean what it says it means, and, and resisted, and resisted, and resisted, and finally God just sort of slapped me down with this verse. Who are you? You have no right to tell God what's just and what's fair and what's right. Verses 22 to 24, it's one long question, but let me read it to you again. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from Jews, but also from the Gentiles. You see, we're not the creator. It's not our right to impose our plan or our will or our purposes on humanity. That's God's right alone. Paul here is not so much asking a question for us to respond to. He's really making a, a statement. Really, you could add the word so at the beginning of verse 22. So what? So what if God is this perfect, holy, just, righteous creator has created humanity in this way? Essentially what Paul is saying, you need to humble yourself before this God and recognize your place as created rather than creator. He determines his creation, not you. And Paul goes on lay out in this, in this question, this long question. There's a lot to unpack here. We could spend more time in it, but simply it's this. God in his sovereign will created vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And take note, it says right there that God endured these people with great patience. There's, there's a, a, a certain level of grace shows, God shows on all people, even those who are destined for hell, those who will never repent. God shows a level of patience and kindness. This is a violation of God's moral will. Going back to the first message on this passage, this is a violation of His moral will, but it is all according to His sovereign will. Now, why did He do that? So that against that backdrop, against the backdrop of, of vile sinners, self-righteous people, people who are very moral, but people who nonetheless reject Christ, reject the great salvation God offers, so that He could demonstrate what? The riches of His glory, the mercy, the love, the grace. And He does so by saving other people whom He has destined for mercy and grace and future glorification. So on the one hand, God is concerned with demonstrating His power, His judgment, His wrath. And without that wrath and judgment and, and, and power, without the demonstration of that, there would be no obvious grace and kindness and love. And so He puts that, He paints that as the backdrop, and then He pulls people out of, the, out of those who are destined for wrath. He pulls people out of that and saves them because in the end we find that they are indeed destined for glory. He rescues people from sin and judgment to glory. All of this, Paul is saying, is one massive, scary, but beautiful demonstration of God's sovereignty and holiness. And Paul brings this up because he wants us to to bow in humility before God's plan, not to complain about it, not to contend with it, not to question it, but to, to humble ourselves before God. The truth is, if you ingest this, you, you ingest a, a deep sense of humility. It should bring about to your life a, a, a humbleness. Now, let me warn you, and this is true of other doctrines as well, but I think it's especially true of the doctrine of election, something that frequently is the case when, when someone first submits to the truth, they find great joy, they find themselves singing louder and rejoicing more and being amazed at God's grace more because they know they absolutely did nothing and they rejoice that God did this in their hearts. They get so excited about this and they want everyone around them to, to know about this as well. 
but they start to do it in a little bit of a prideful way. They can't understand why other people can't understand it like they understand it. They live up to that caricature of arrogant Calvinist, right? They drive everybody nuts. All they can talk about is election, predestination, and they've got all the truth, and no one else has it unless they have the same understanding. So my warning is, as you discover these truths, don't fall for that temptation that you might have of of knowledge without love, of doctrine without kindness and warmth and humility. Let this truth bring you to your knees in humbleness and humility about the God who had great mercy on you and show that grace and mercy and humility to others who may not be where you are as they grapple. This is the starting point of bowing to this doctrine is humility. I I think we need strong words like Paul's here. And we, we need to be slapped down once in a while. Be shown that we need humility and brokenness. And I think Part of it is because it's what God deserves. It's what is required of of someone who really worships God. I think that's the first reason. But I think another reason is so we can all get along. You think about the community of the church. We have all these different personalities and gifts and ideas and, and, and opinions about lots of things. And you put us all in one group called the church. You put us all together. But if we all realize we're here simply by the mercy and grace of a sovereign God, if we realize that, what, what kindness, what warmth, what fellowship will we have? But if we all show up and we think we've sort of done something and we've accomplished something, we have a certain level and we all show up with feeling like we've got a certain amount of giftedness and an amount of power and an amount of spiritual sensitivity, we all show up like that, what happens? Sparks fly. Now, this ought to cause us a great deal of humility Humility towards one another, humility to those who have different understandings of this doctrine, humility towards anybody in our family. This is the first thing that Paul sort of slaps us down to, a great level of humility. Paul offers two scriptural evidences of this plan that God has made to, to destine people for heaven and for hell. He would surprisingly save some, sanctify some, call them out of death. It's all around them. Uh, the first sort of is a summary. The first passage he mentions is sort of a summary or collection of statements from Hosea's chap- Hosea chapters 1 and 2. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. The very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. This was a message to the people who found great pride, who found, took great personal credit of being Jewish and practicing Judaism. This is back in Hosea's day. They felt like just by virtue of them being Jewish and following the Jewish rituals that, that God has to look upon those efforts and save them, that, that God would be unjust if He didn't calculate their responses to Him or their activity or their religion. If He didn't calculate that, they felt like it would be unjust or unfair if He didn't save them. And God says through Hosea, I will save people that are not even Jewish. I'll save people who are Gentiles. I'll pass over all these very religious Jewish people who are very prideful. And I'll save the broken 
Gentiles. They will be called my children. The second scriptural evidence is from basically the same era of Israel's history, the 8th century B.C. Isaiah and Hosea overlap. Isaiah says that just because a person is Jewish and practices Jewish ritual does not mean he is automatically saved. In fact, Isaiah, and then Paul points this out, that most Jews reject the Messiah. But by God's grace, even a remnant of the people of Israel will be saved. They are predestined for salvation. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. In other words, there are many people of Israel. In fact, you could say most of the people of Israel will be judged. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah and become like Gomorrah. Again, instead of pridefully lamenting the fact that God is not sort of in the response, the seat of response, responding to mankind, responding to us in some twisted way dependent on us, instead of being frustrated about the fact that He's not in that position, rejoice because God saved even a remnant against the backdrop of many who would never receive Christ. So the first characteristic that we need to know and we need to incorporate in order to bow to a sovereign God, the first idea here is that of humility. God, we rejoice that you would choose anyone, not the least of it, which is me. Now, at some point, someone might raise another objection similar to what the people of, the Jewish people primarily of Rome Objected to. If God just chooses him, he will save and creates them and sets out their life so that one day they'll repent. If God consequently, sort of as the opposite side of that, if God passes over people, essentially chooses others to be lost, gives them over to their desires and eventually judges them for that, what about all the good stuff they do? It seems like it'd be unjust because those people still do good things, right? I mean, pagans and people who reject Christ still do good things. I mean, there are plenty of non-Christians that we know of that are pretty good people. You're saying that they're going to go to hell? Seems unfair. Paul answers this in verse 30 all the way to the end. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness as by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed it, succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based in works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Second and final component to bowing before a sovereign God, responsibility. Responsibility. There is humility before a sovereign God, but there is still human responsibility. Now, Paul doesn't call it free will, that gives us, that conjures up the idea that God sort of determines his plan based on ours. Paul doesn't call it free will. He doesn't call it self-determination. But clearly, Paul, using Isaiah here, says that people die and are condemned for their sin and for their lack of faith. The Bible teaches that God is indeed sovereign in salvation, but it also teaches that people are ultimately responsible for their salvation. God chooses them, but people are nevertheless punished for their sin. They're not punished for God's plan. They're punished for their hard-hearted rejection. And people reject in different ways, right? We know this, that not all people go to hell for 
shaking their fist at God and spitting in the ground every time they hear something about the Bible or Jesus or whatever. You know, a lot of people go to church and are self-righteous and seem very moral. They're trying to get get to God on, on different on a different plan. And that's essentially the example that he's giving here about the Jewish people. These are people who pursued good works. They pursued morality. They pursued even ritual. Yet they had a lack of faith. They're responsible to have faith in Christ alone. And yet they did not. They had faith in maybe a little bit of Christ, but they had faith in their works. They had faith in what they accomplished. The quote here that Paul gives is from Isaiah 28, 16 and also Isaiah 8, 14, he incorporates in this quote, God had laid a foundation stone, a foundation for the people of God, which should be the object of their faith, Jesus Christ. He was to be the foundation stone of Israel. But just as Isaiah predicted, that stone, Jesus of Nazareth, would become a stumbling stone. He would become a stone of offense. And later in Isaiah, it says that the future remnant, the people of Israel who would be saved, would, would recognize this reality that most of them had looked upon Christ and esteemed Him as, as rightfully being killed for His sin. And if you talk to particularly Orthodox Jews nowadays, they, they really believe that. They sincerely believe Jesus was a false teacher and He rightfully was killed, executed for His views. Why? Because they wanted a strong man, they wanted a hero, they wanted a Savior who would, who would reward them for all of their good works. But Jesus came riding on a donkey, humble of spirit, and he laid down his life. And all people in all the world have the responsibility to find this truth, to understand this truth, to search out this truth, to receive that truth in their hearts, and if they do not, they will die and be judged. All humans have that responsibility. We, we are not automatons mindlessly plodding through life with no expression, with no emotion. We have volition. We have responsibility to do exactly what God intends all of us to do according to His moral will. He intends all people, He wants all people to repent and not die. He wants all people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, there, just as He destined us, we find unbelievable joy and happiness and everlasting life. I read this quote. Let me finish by giving you a quote. I read this quote. It's from a theologian by the name of John Frame. I read this quote last time we were in this passage, six, seven years ago. Let me read it to you again, and we'll be, we'll be finished. Scripture is concerned, above all, to glorify God. Sometimes glorifying God humbles man, and those who believe Scripture must be willing to accept that consequence. We, we covet for ourselves more dignity, honor, and status, and we resist accepting a lower place. But Scripture assaults our pride and honors the humble. Scripture compares us, after all, not to sophisticated robots, but here in Romans 9 to simple potter's clay. What if it turns out that we are robots after all? Clay fashioned into marvelous robots rather than being left as mere, mere clay. Should we complain to God about that? 
Or should we feel rather honored that our bodies and our minds are fashioned so completely to fulfill our assigned roles in God's great drama? Some creatures are born as rabbits, some as cockroaches, some as bacteria. By comparison, would it not be a privilege to be born as a massively intelligent robot? Indeed, what remarkable robots we would be, capable of love and intimacy with God and one another and assigned to rule over all the other creatures. Is it, is it not a wonderful blessing of grace that we send in Adam, God did not simply discard us as a potter might very well do with his clay, as a robot operator might well do with his malfunctioning machine, but he sent his son, his only son, to die for us. Risen with him to new life, believers enjoy unimaginably wonderful fellowship with him forever. Ladies and gentlemen, let us praise God in humility for what He's accomplished on our behalf. And let us carry with us the responsibility to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. Let's pray for that right now. Father, we do humble ourselves before Your might, before Your strength. We humble ourselves We are not the ones who know, have a better idea about how to set up creation. We don't know whom you have chosen for death or for life. From our perspective, all we know is we are responsible to respond to your son. And whatever response we give, ultimately it is you who are responsible and we worship you for it. Ultimately it is you He's given us the power, and so we worship you for all of this. So, God, may we come to this doctrine, and I know not all of us in this room, not all of us watching, not all people in our church will come to the exact same position, the exact same understanding of these difficult doctrines. But, Lord, we pray that we would be people of humility, people of gratitude, people of graciousness and mercy to one another and thankfulness to you. Lord, it is by your strength and by your power that we are anything. And so we give you all the glory. Lord, we don't know. You might have used this little series to call one or more of your children to salvation. Perhaps they have wondered down deep in their hearts if they're elect, and maybe you're answering that question right now by calling them to your Son, Jesus Christ. You're calling them to repentance. You're calling them to faith to give up everything. Lord, may they give you glory. May they thank you for that call by following Jesus. So, Lord, may that humility lead to responsibility, the desire and duty that we all have to obey. And then to go on and tell people of your love and mercy and kindness and truth. May we not shy away even from hard doctrines. Jesus, you even told your disciples to teach people everything that you have commanded. And so, Lord, may we be faithful in teaching the whole counsel, the Word of God, to the best of our ability. That responsibility is ours, Lord, though we know ultimately it is you who change hearts. And so we give you all the glory for this. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.